In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Respectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Jess Seelove. And Jess will be filling in for Michael today. Michael and I are both going to be taking weeks off, prospectively, so I will be off next week and Jess will be filling in for Michael. But uh, thank you very much for joining us as a guest co-host today, Jess. Happy to be here. Yep. All right. So today we're going to be talking about... COVID-19 and the protests, how both of those kind of intermingle with each other and how they should both be a part of the public conversation. Then we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, new regulations from the Trump administration regarding trans people while also discussing the uh, landmark decision by the Supreme Court. And then we're going to end today by talking about limited government and the principles of limited government and how... The left really needs to reappropriate that concept in what they advocate for. I wish that the left would use that as a talking point when discussing abortion. Yeah. I would like the government to be very limited in my decision as to whether I get an abortion or not. Yep, that's definitely one of the one of the things we're going to be talking about then. So let's get started by talking a little bit about COVID-19. Yeah, yeah, let's. So okay. We haven't been talking about COVID-19 as much over the last over the last few episodes it's it's, it's been 84 years and, yeah. <laughs> and i'm feeling it <laughs> so does that mean that covid19 is no longer a problem jess no it's so much of a problem it's 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 problematic it's our problematic thing of the year yeah so this this goes back to a point that uh michael and i have made in previous podcasts about how the media really doesn't tell you what to think it tells you what to think about yeah, um, we saw that in 2016, where Trump got all of this free press in the mainstream media. And um, a lot of people rightfully pointed out that they gave him all of this free airtime that he would have otherwise had to purchase. And without that, maybe he would have just, um, you know, been smothered out as a candidate. And we've seen that in the recent primary election for the Democratic Party, where um, Biden got a lot of media coverage, um, Klobuchar, a lot of the more moderate establishment candidates um, received favorable um, and present uh, discussion. Yeah, absolutely. So let's go ahead and make sure that we're keeping COVID-19 at the forefront of the conversation. So let me just go over the numbers, because if you were going based on how media coverage has shifted, you might think that we're actually getting to a point where COVID-19 is getting to be less of a problem. And while it is true that the daily death rate has actually been gradually decreasing, which is absolutely good news, the daily new cases has been steadily increasing. That's something that we need to be aware of because I don't know what it felt feels like for everyone else, but it felt to me like about a month ago, uh, everyone just woke up one day and decided they were tired of being inconvenienced from staying at home when they could stay at home. Note that I made the distinction. There are plenty of folks who 
through no choice of their own, have to go out um, because of work, because they're an essential worker, because their employer has opened the business and they need to go to work in order to survive um, and have money for, you know, luxuries like rent and food. But again, if you have the privilege of being able to stay home, no matter how sympathetic I am to you about your loneliness and isolation and frustration, that is no excuse. You need to be staying home. Yeah, absolutely. Um, although we will talk a little bit about uh, about that later, a caveat to that, which is um, how that functions into the protest. But before that, I just want to give you a brief update on the overall numbers in the world and also in the United States. So in the world, there are currently 8,168,043 uh, total cases, uh, and that's uh, 59,376 new cases. And this is as of uh, today, June 16th. Uh, the total deaths around the world has been 440,514. New deaths has been 1,918. Specifically in the United States, there has been... Uh, 2,188,203 total cases. Uh, the new cases are 5,253. The total deaths have been 118,487. And that is with new deaths as of uh, yesterday being uh, 204. And that's only from COVID. I think sometimes it's easy to hear that number and think about the population of the world and um, how many people die per year and not really remember that um, in the U.S., this is only the death count from COVID. So we're introducing a new element that's going to be causing death as opposed to the other things that are um, causing a lot of death, like heart disease, car accidents, things of that nature. Uh, yeah, absolutely, Jess. So don't think of it as, well, this many people, this is going to replace a certain number of people that die. This is very much uh, on top of all of the things that make people die in general. And also it's important to note that still... The United States makes up a quarter of the total cases in the world, but we still make up about 5% of the global population. Did you um, see that there are a lot of medical professionals and researchers who are very concerned about flu season in the U.S., particularly because of our concerns about overwhelming hospitals that doesn't go away Um if we have cases of COVID that are maintaining or even going higher, and we also add in cases of flu, which is a major problem uh, everywhere and in the U.S., we have a lot of hospitalizations from that. We are likely to see our resources taxed um, to a degree that they cannot handle, and it will buckle under the weight. Yeah, But fortunately, fortunately, our dear leader has a master plan for how to get our numbers down. He's going to go in the bunker and uh, bomb everyone outside with his fun toys from the military? No. Really? I would not be surprised if that was plan you B. You can't <laughs> catch COVID if you're dead, Nathan. Yeah, I mean... That, if you got blowed up, that, that you is, can't catch COVID. That is true. No, his it's plan... It's funny because it's true and we might all die. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, his plan, just stop testing. I, I'm sorry. I want to say something, but my brain just quit. It Hold on. It just quit out. 
Remember several weeks ago when Trump said that and he was universally ridiculed for that because that is a stupid ass thing to say? I wonder if he just forgot that. I wonder if his brain just glitched. So you say that, but I happen to have the misfortune of having a lot of conservative people on my timeline <laughs> um, and social media. And I remember so many people talking about how but the number of cases are going up because we've increased the test. We've increased testing. Yes, that's that's the exact definition of how it works. If we can test more, then we know who is actually um, contracted COVID and who hasn't. It's not as if the test gave people COVID. You're being what's the word? Stupid. Yeah. That's the word. It's like if we stopped collecting data on the amount of people that die in drunk driving accidents, suddenly we'd have no cases of people dying of drunk driving accidents. Problem solved. I'm I'm having this um, vision in my head of the future a hundred years from now. And I don't know if anyone's familiar with reading like historical texts or um, medical history in particular, where so many things were just called pox or sweating sickness. And they kind of had to guess based on the time of year and the other symptoms, what it actually was because they didn't have a lot of names for these things and they couldn't test it. That's going to be what COVID is described. It's like, oh, you know, 400,000 people died of the sickness we don't know what that means. They didn't test for it. <laughs> yeah. So I pity our future historians. I really do. <laughs> well, I, I kind of have a little bit of hope that our future historians will, will look at what we're doing today, what's happening today, and see it as so obviously idiotic. The same way that we look at things like bloodletting or uh, prenatal baptism. Uh, did you know that because people thought that if uh, if a, a baby was uh, was not baptized, they would go into purgatory, that uh, early priests and early religious leaders tried to baptize uh, fetuses when they were in the womb, and it often killed them, which, interestingly enough, is why the church decided back then that life began at birth. Yeah. Which, uh, How they, do you feel about that, Catholic Church? Yeah, you want to well, talk was, about that? Well, again, it was because they they decided like, okay, if a person dies because we tried to baptize them when they were in utero, that's obviously not part of God's plan. So maybe it's better to just say, okay, when they're born, we'll go ahead and baptize them. Let's not do it then. They're, they're not alive yet, so they won't be in purgatory. What a remarkable concept. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, I hope that we view some of the things that we're doing now kind of the way uh, uh, we view those things. Um, so the, so one of the important conversations that this has been created has been, what does it mean to protest during the COVID-19 outbreak? Yes, I actually have um, again, seen and heard from a lot of conservatives that this is, hypocritical of um, liberals and progressives and that it is um, obviously either contributing evidence to the fact that COVID is a hoax of some sort or just more proof that the left wing lug nuts, as they like to call us, um, don't have any sort of internal logic and are just a bunch of crying babies who do what they want. 
I'm going to push back hard on that. What about you, Nathan? Oh, I'm definitely going to push back on that. But first, I do want to, I do want to seed one small point and then make a broader point. Mm. So the first point that it were, if I were a conservative, the argument that I would be making um, is that in the United States, a thousand people die every year because of police killings. And yeah, that, that is, that is a problem. But when we're talking about COVID-19, about 200 people died of COVID-19 since yesterday. So it is clearly killing more people than police violence. To which I would counter as a knowledgeable leftist that black people have been dying at higher rates in the United States from COVID, which is indicative, and there is a lot of research behind this, of systemic racism in every element of society. Pick one thing you like about our society and we can find, I feel like that guy in Big Fat Greek Wedding, pick one thing <laughs> in US culture and I'll tell you how it's racist. Yeah, and um, that, that is a very important point because remember- Systemic racism is still driving deaths of black people in every single, pretty much every single element of death. Yeah, these protests, yes, they are about police killings, um, but they're also about an overall system of systemic racism. And which complacency. Due to like, and complacency, which due to COVID-19 is actually having a greater effect on the black community. But even beyond that, even if we're keeping the conversation just on law enforcement, it's not even just about the instances in that result in someone dying. That is a, a major part of the conversation. But it's also about law enforcement officers' ability to break the law with impunity. So mm -hmm. USA Today did a comprehensive study in which they gathered records from various different uh, police stations, various different police departments about instances of misconduct. And they found some pretty amazing statistics. So first off, at least 85,000 law enforcement officers across the United States over the last decade have been investigated or disciplined for misconduct. So let's break apart those numbers a bit more. So there are at least 200,000 separate incidents of alleged misconduct. And of those, wow. more than 30,000 officers were decertified by 44 oversight agencies. So let's look at some of the uh, some of the specific things that they were investigated for. So these investigations of misconduct include 22,924 investigations of officers using excessive force. So maybe they didn't kill someone, but they beat the hell out of somebody when it was not warranted. And that is also 3,145 allegations of rape child molestation, and other sexual misconduct, and 2,307 cases of domestic violence by police officers. Yeah, now it, it's important to note that because a lot of people talk about good cops and they have the idea that the majority of cops are good. And what I would say to that is what I often hear when people talk about um, an abuser or someone who has um, 
committed rape or a sexual assault where you will find plenty of people saying they never raped me. They never hurt me. Um, it's important that you understand that if you have only seen someone's good side, it's probably because they never felt they were in a position of power over you. Yeah. If you're familiar at all with the Stanford prison experiment, it is an interesting um, experiment that was done all the way back in 1971 that basically demonstrated how those who are in a position of power or perceived power are easily um, encouraged to become more and more brutal in their uh, techniques to suppress those who are under their control. And these were normal people who were screened. They were probably very similar to maybe how you act in your everyday life. But given the right circumstances, given unaccounted authority, they will oppress people. That is what happens in these institutions. That is, Yeah, that is a very important point. And also, on top of that, so if we are going to cede the point that most police officers do not do this, and, and the findings of this article actually do... Uh, do reinforce that. In fact, they found that less than 10% of officers in most police forces get investigated for misconduct. However, they have watched. They're constantly, many of these officers are constantly under investigation. And in fact, 2,500 have been investigated on 10 or more charges. So when you have a large number of police officers who keep getting investigated, keep getting investigated, keep getting investigated, keep doing misconduct, keep doing misconduct. Even if you do have police officers in that precinct that have never done anything bad, that have never committed misconduct, have never had any complaints lodged against them, you do still have that culture set up of people being able to abuse their power with impunity. I think a lot of that speaks to how um, that's reinforced by our culture that has a an idea that we must worship police um, and some other select career branches. And what I would say is, do you feel that way about sanitation workers? Because let me tell you, if your garbage weren't picked up, if your sewage were not safely um, evacuated away from your drinking water, if your water was not treated, you would die. That's pretty much the history of the world. Mm -hmm. um, if you are not treated well at a hospital or other medical facility by nurses, physicians, CNAs, anyone involved in that care, you can die. You, If you are not going around offering to buy lunch every time you see someone in scrubs or in, um, you know, a, uh, a shirt that says that they work with a plumbing company, you should question why you devote the same level of hero worship to a cop. I understand that they have risks associated with their job. So do, so do sanitation workers. So do electric workers. So do welders. So does every person who works to do something valuable in our society yeah yeah uh another another point to bring up with that is so conservatives seem to argue that they want a world in which we respect police officers in which we do 
think of police officers as being a force of safety and comfort. That's how they want us to view the police. So if that is your goal, then you need to institute reforms. If your goal is for people to look at police at the police force or look at law enforcement as someone as people that should make them feel safe, then they can't be the people that are uh, oppressing them. Now, even if you do, even if we do say that it's only like 10 percent of all police officers, you know that. If you are encountering a police officer, that means that anytime that happens, there is a uh, like a one in 10 chance of that police officer being a dirty cop. And not only that, but you also know that if they are a dirty cop, they're just going to get away with it. Yeah, that is something um, that I often hear is that if we were to start censuring police publicly for brutality, overreaches of power, um, assault, anything that the public would lose trust in them. Which does not make sense. I don't know we any other. We don't trust them. <laughs> well, well, how would you trust any employer, or, or sorry, any profession? How would you trust any profession? Accountability. That is why now in medicine, if you look at like the history of medicine, you pretty much used to be able to set up shop and say, "I'm a doctor," and no one was really going to push you on it because how did they know? We don't have that allowance now because we realized at some point that we needed accountability. We needed people to go to school. We needed people to get training. And we also needed to make rules that you were not allowed to just experiment on someone without showing evidence as to why these experiments could be valuable and getting full consent. This is a very basic idea. You'd never go to your doctor and if your doctor heard that you were having a heart attack and said, I don't know, let's try shoving some bananas in your eyes. You'd never allow that. If they did that, you'd fire them and you'd say, wow, I can't believe they got away with that. Yeah. So all of this comes back to this idea that we're trying to address, that we're trying to make very clear, which is that the reforms that these protesters are arguing for are essential because, number one, people are dying. And even number two, even people that aren't dying. They're still having their rights trampled. They're being abused. And number three, this is not just about the police force. It's about racism in every fabric of society. A lot of which, as Jess pointed out earlier, is impacted by COVID-19. In fact, the WHO, who has been... <laughs> who has been... That was not intentional. Uh, the WHO, <laughs> the WHO, uh, the organization which has been giving us guidelines and has been giving us some of the most firm direction on how we prevent the spread of COVID-19, even they have come out and said that they support these protests as essential acts because racism in and of itself it's, it's a health crisis. It's a health crisis. It, it's a health crisis. It's funny that so many people um, can understand the concept of we need immediate action to treat or cure uh, some ailment that is affecting a percentage of the population like cancer or diabetes. Um, they can think of at least one person in their life that they know that's been affected by that. And yet... Um, we have a, a 
deeply whitewashed history that tells us that racism isn't as bad a problem in our country as as it really is. It tells us, it erases most of our history. It erases black history, which is the history of our country. You cannot have, um, you cannot have gone through the American school system and not noticed at a certain point that there is very little discussion of um, the history of racism in our country and how we've done so little to actually uh, subvert it and to be anti-racist. Yeah. So the last point that we wanted to make on this is specifically how it is important for protesters to do as much as they can to prevent the spread of the disease. And most and most of them are. A lot of them are wearing masks. Um, and also one thing that we do want to point out is that if you are a vulnerable population or if you live with a vulnerable population and you feel that it is too risky to physically get out and protest... That doesn't necessarily mean that there's nothing that you can do in order to fight against racism. Yeah, you can donate if you have any money. Um, I understand things are tight. Uh, we donated even though things are tight for us, not because that that is something that is exemplary for a person to do. It was just something we could do. We were fortunate to be in a position where we could do this small thing. If you are able to donate your time or your efforts into helping organize events, helping organize supplies, helping um, out with various organizations and getting direction from people about what you can do at the bare minimum on an individual level, one of the best things you can do that is actual work is educate yourself, um, particularly if you are not a person of color, particularly if you are a white person. Educate yourself. Learn about history that hasn't been presented to you probably in your suburban school. Learn about the ways that racism shows up and confront things in yourself that might feel uncomfortable or ugly and in others around you. Sometimes we have people that we love and they have said things that have made a mark on how we think. And we have to be aware of that. And then we have to push back against it. And on top of all of that, there have been a lot of cases and articles that have discussed the treatment of some of these protesters in custody at the hands of police and how police officers don't seem to be interested in taking steps to prevent the spread of the disease among these protesters. Now, first off, a lot of these protesters are arrested for simple things like violating curfew, which arguably curfew should not even be implemented. And some of you listening may have um, seen there was some coverage about how police officers are actually manipulating events to force people to violate curfew. There have been incidences of people who were at a protest, it is before curfew, and they have kettled them in, where they stop people from being able to leave. Some people have been arrested prior to curfew even occurring, and they've asked to be let go so that they can go home and refused. The conditions of people who have been arrested have, um, from some accounts, been absolutely horrific. Uh, if we want to talk about the spread of covid Keeping people in a tight, confined space where they can't breathe um, or where they are so close to each other that they can't get any distance, 
that's not helping um, prevent the spread of COVID. There are reports of people who have not been put in a facility that has um, toilets, so they have had to urinate on themselves or in, on the floor. There have been people who've talked about not getting access to water, um, not getting their phone calls, not having their basic rights respected. And if you are somebody who says, I support protesting, but you might get arrested if you're in a group where someone breaks the law, you must at least acknowledge that we consider it a great mark of pride in this country that our prison system and our criminal justice system is supposed to be sophisticated and um, and allow basic human rights. And it does not, at the best of times, do that. But currently, there have been some pretty horrifying accounts from people. And I don't think that's getting enough coverage in the mainstream media because these are all firsthand accounts and there are so many of them I think that that is something worth thinking about and discussing and understanding. Yeah. The LA Times has had some really good reporting on this, so I would strongly encourage you all to look up some more of those stories to see what is going on and to further educate yourself about how they're making a, an already bad situation e even more toxic. And now... Time for one of the more positive segments of this podcast, as positive as things can be right now. Uh, tips for good. Nathan, please tell us, why do you do tips for good on this podcast? Well, we do tips for good every week so that we can give you something sometimes small, sometimes a little bit bigger, but just something that gives you agency to incorporate into your life. Something that can make the world at least a little bit of a better place. Because that is ultimately the goal of the Perspectrum, to have a positive impact on the world. So, what is this week's tip for good, Jess? Don't voter shame for a variety of reasons. Don't voter shame because you're right and the person that was voted for, um, that someone voted for was absolutely awful because you won't convince them otherwise by just doing shame. And don't vote or shame for someone choosing not to vote. Yeah, well, first off, let's go ahead and define what we mean by voter shaming. Because when we say voter shame, we're not saying, like, you shouldn't invest yourself at all into who people are voting for. Because ultimately, the main purpose of persuasion in politics should be to influence people's activism. And one of the huge ways that you influence a person's activism is by influencing their vote. So I'm definitely not saying that you should not try to persuade people to vote the way that you want them to vote. Yeah, I remember actually a forensics piece you did on shame activism, shactivism, which is where you use shame and you do that in place of activism and you're not actually furthering your cause. Yeah. As much as I am deeply ashamed by people I know who've made um, really horrible choices and whom they voted for, that shame will not necessarily push them into doing what they need to do you need to work on um, trying to persuade from different angles. And sometimes, unfortunately, that angle has to be, well, I know you're a good person, so I'm just confused. Could you explain it to me? Yeah. So to be clear, what that means is that that doesn't mean that you're not right. 
like you can still see yourself in the moral right. And, and from my own point of view, I view voting as an essential. And I also view voting third party as being pointless. Um, now I view it that way, uh, on a practical level. And then I transfer that practicality into morality. So in this is, so the way I view it is I'm going to vote for in this in this election i'm going to vote for joe biden even though i'm not a huge fan of him even though i'm disgusted by the sexual assault allegations i'm disgusted by the way it was ignored by the way it was mishandled um I'm by disgusted the way by the establishment and the mainstream media run by um corporate interest really closed in the race around joe biden regardless of his fitness for office um regardless of his record regardless of how in touch or out of touch he is with our reality yeah. um at one point uh chuck todd from msnbc called bernie supporters brown shirts let it sink in for just a second that someone called supporters of a jewish man who's been in politics for so long that when he first entered politics being a jew was not considered white in the 60s and 70s it wasn't considered black but it was not whiteness and so it's pretty surprising that he was able to become elected and continue to thrive in politics and to call his supporters brown shirts when there are actual nazis who are feeling empowered by our current administration is absolutely disgusting and i didn't see anyone really uh, push back against him for that. Yeah. So so anyway, the the point that the point that I'm trying to make though with all of that. I I I have deep feelings of antipathy currently towards Joe Biden. However, the way I see it personally is Donald Trump is the single biggest threat and that has been exacerbated over the last month. He has been trampling all over First Amendment rights. He has been exacerbating racial tensions. And even before this, he exacerbated uh, conflicts in the Middle East. He still has his child separation policy going on. Um, he has been actively... He has been actively rolling back protections for the LGBTQ community. And so those are massive differences. So the way I see it, any act that I take that make it easier for Trump to get elected is one thing that I cannot in good conscience do. However, some people view it differently. Some people might view it as Joe Biden. If I vote for Joe Biden, then by by uh, uh, by association, I am responsible for any bad thing that he does. Or I am showing him... Uh, clemency for bad things he has done in the past. So there are moral reasons why people decide not to vote or to vote for Biden. Now, my mission right now, my personal mission, I want people to vote for Biden because I want Trump to get out of office. But we're not going to do that by trying to voter shame. We're not going to do that by trying to make people think that their current their current position is done purely out of maliciousness, malcontent, or a lack of morality. That's not how we're going to do this. That's not how we're going to win the election. And the extension of that also includes not just progressives that voted for Bernie Sanders but can't but are not sure if they're going to bring themselves to vote for Joe Biden, but also Trump supporters, former Trump supporters, former Trump voters that have been disgusted by him and then and now want something different. 
Yeah, you don't punish the dog that comes home. Yeah, exactly. So you might be rightfully hurt if someone that you care about voted for Donald Trump in 2016. There are a lot of people that I know that I care about that when I learned that they voted for Donald Trump, it was very it was very hurtful. It made me think very differently of them. But a lot of those same people have come around and they've realized it. And despite the fact that I'm still hurt that they didn't realize it earlier, it is wonderful that they have come around to realize how terrible Trump is. And if if you're someone who's more like me um, and can't actually get past that and muster up enthusiasm to reestablish um, positive regard for that person, what I say is um, if they really are going to leave from voting for Trump, if they're going to vote for anyone other than Trump, let them. If they're going to vote for a third party, um, if they're going to write themselves in, let them. That just means that he won't get voted for um but you know try to uh tell them you're so glad that they changed their mind and you really hope that they make um wise decisions in the election and feel betrayed later because i don't think that really goes away yeah and the last and the last point that i want to make is that there are a lot of people that due to structural barriers are not able to vote and instead of shaming them for that you know fight for voter reform so that's our tip this week if you want to be effective if you want to fight for the cause that you are that that you believe in voter shaming is not the way to do it don't voter shame folks you heard it here first and that's tips for good all right let's lead into a pretty infuriating story about the Trump administration and their desire to roll back protections for folks in the LGBTQ community because of course they would. Yeah. Specifically, we're looking at uh, trans people in healthcare. So the uh, HHS at the behest of Donald Trump is now rolling back an Obama era executive order that specifically defined sex discrimination as laid out by the Affordable Care Act as also including gender identity. So Roger Severino, who directs the Office for Civil Rights at the Department of Health and Human Services, said in a statement, quote, HHS respects the dignity of every human being. And as we have shown in our response to the pandemic, we vigorously protect and enforce the civil rights of all to the fullest extent permitted by our laws passed by Congress. Nathan, you forgot the part where he said, ha, psych. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's kind of hilarious that he's using the response to the pandemic, which is famously disproportionately affecting marginalized communities as an example of how they vigorously protect civil rights. That's I mean, ooh, you know what? Maybe he thinks all these deaths are not and all this death and sickness. Maybe he doesn't think that's from COVID. Maybe he thinks people are sick of winning. Yeah. So this has some very troubling implications. This is awful. It's 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 a bad thing from a bad man and bad people. They they should they should stop doing things. So under the new rule, 
according to uh, Lindsay Dolson, who's the associate director of HIV policy at the Kaiser Family Foundation, under the new rule, a transgender person could potentially be refused care for checkup at a doctor's office. And also, there are, scenario, there are possible scenarios that could include a transgender man being denied treatment for ovarian cancer or a hysterectomy not being covered by an insurer. And something I wonder about, maybe there is um, more information on this, but if you are someone who does not consider themselves trans and you think this doesn't apply to you, I would be pretty sure that you or no one you care about is intersex because intersex conditions are much more common than we've been led to believe. Uh, there's a history in the medical community of um, suppressing that information from patients, of choosing to do things, uh, medical procedures that assign a certain sex um, or sex characteristics to someone who has these uh, intersex conditions. So if what I wonder, if you are someone who has um, a penis, but also has ovaries, whether or not that is going to be something that is covered or whether you're going to face difficulty with your insurance company because they might be able to deny that. I don't know, but I don't know whether the Trump administration necessarily even considered it since intersex um, folks are not really considered by legislators when they're making decisions about laws regarding health care. Yeah, that I'm not sure about. Um, but one of the one of the important wordings, which this wording and we'll get to We'll get to mm -hmm. why later. This wording might actually come back to bite them in the ass. But uh, Servino said at the time of uh, the implementation of this new policy, um, we're going back to the plain meaning of those terms, which is based on biological sex, referring to uh, male-female. So he's specifically saying that when we're talking about discrimination under the Affordable Care Act, we are only talking about it on the basis of biological sex. Which, again... Um, is not scientifically minded at all. If you know anything about anatomy and physiology of humans, you might have difficulty pinpointing what it is that describes a male or female sex presentation um, because it seems to be accepted principle that if you are born with a vulva and um, certain levels of or well, will develop certain levels of estrogen and you have a uterus and ovaries, that you are female. But what if you're not? What if you're born with a uterus and ovaries, but you have a micro penis? What if you have testosterone levels that are higher than what is considered normal? Yeah, what if is... there are other conditions that are happening? What if you have a penis and then something happens like an infection or trauma that means you lose your penis? Does that no longer mean that you're a male? It's absolutely ludicrous to believe still that there is a biological binary sex. And I'm not even talking about gender because there is not a binary gender either. But there's no biological binary sex it doesn't exist it's something that people made up because they're obsessed with genitals it's yeah. not true so there are three different levels of development of sex um now now uh jess was talking about uh, intersex conditions um intersex conditions are estimated to impact 1.7 percent 
of the human population. Worth noting, however, is that many people will never be um, exp- many people will never actually know if they are intersex, um, and it might not be through medical negligence. It just might be something that does not come up yeah. at all in their entire life, and so there would be no reason to investigate it. Yeah, and also to give to give some reference to that number. Um, that means approximately one in 60 people, which is approximately, which is approximately the same percentage as people with red hair. So what I would ask you is how many people do you know that have red hair? You probably know approximately that many people that have some form of intersex conditions. So there are three levels of development, uh, in human biology. There is uh, chromosomal. So, you know, X, Y chromosomes. So if if you believe that sex is determined at the chromosomal level, I would ask you what you believe um, or how that would impact the sex of someone with Turner syndrome, which is classified as affecting females because one of the X's is missing or partially missing. But then if you don't have two X chromosomes, then by that definition, you're not female. You are something else. Um, I, again, want to stress that there's no binary. It's not, it's just not true in nature. You get a lot of combinations. Yeah. The next level is gonadotropal. So whether you were born with ovaries or testicles. Um, And then the third level is genitalia, whether you were born with a penis or a vagina. And Which, as I discussed before, those things can be in combination. You might have a penis, but have ovaries. You might have ovaries but you might have a clitoris that looks more like a micro penis exactly and again these are not necessarily rare as we talked about approximately 1.7 percent of the population around the same percentage as people with red hair have some form of intersex condition so even if we are looking just at sex we're not even talking about we're not we're, we're not even talking about gender identity we're just talking about sex even then it's still not a binary so pretending that oh this is going back to them using science to determine whether or not they're discriminating against people uh even if we even if we cede that point to them it's still not a binary wait a minute nathan are are you are you thinking that it, it's just possible that maybe lawmakers in particular conservative lawmakers have a habit of legislating health care Without actually understanding biology. Is, is that possible? I don't know. Oh, you know, gee, it, has that ever <laughs> happened before? Like, like, has anyone ever... This is... All right, I'm pulling something wild out here. It's, it's really like, I can't think of anyone this stupid, but someone who says that you have to um, get an abortion prior to six weeks because... Uh, they don't understand that at six weeks pregnant, you've only missed your period for two weeks, giving you two weeks to come up with the money for an abortion, even see a physician to get tested um, for a pregnancy, all of those things. I mean, that no one would be that stupid, right? Like they yeah, could just that, ask an OBGYN. That sounds like a scenario that could only exist in like a dystopian nightmare. Like nobody could, nobody couldn't do a quick Google search and find out how long a menstrual cycle is, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, like they couldn't have like staffers with um all the time in the world to look that kind of thing up so they don't look like a moron in front of the whole country yeah but it turns out sarcasm for those who can't read sarcasm (laughs) tone which is fine 
But yeah. that was sarcasm. But it turns out that this wording might actually come back to bite them in the ass. Oh, I do love it when that happens. There actually is some amazing news that happened just yesterday, which interestingly enough, you know, just a side note, happened on Jess's and my anniversary. Yes, it was a nice anniversary present. Yeah. So in a Supreme Court case, which is called Bostek versus Clayton County, the United States Supreme Court ruled that the Civil Rights Act of 1964, specifically the Employment Protections for Sex Discrimination, apply to the LGBTQ community, which effectively has made it illegal for employers to discriminate against people based on sexual orientation or gender identity in the entire United States. And what's even more surprising is that Trump nominated Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote the opinion. Yeah. That so what's interesting when I first saw this, when I first saw the news alert, I was certain. I was certain that this was going to be another 5-4 decision with Roberts being the dissenting opinion. I was certain of that. And then I saw that it was a 6-3 decision. And I was like, wait, if it, if it wasn't, who else, who was the other conservative justice that sided with them? And when I saw that Neil Gorsuch, who was appointed by Donald Trump, who, by the way, his administration has specifically, specifically encouraged the Supreme Court to reject the case of the gay worker that was suing. He specifically told them to rule against equality in this. Neil Gorsuch not only voted in favor of employment protections, but he also wrote the opinion. He wrote the majority opinion that ruled in favor of them. And the wording of this is really important. Right. As Nathan said, if you'll recall that the Trump administration um, with the HHS has decided that these health care protections for trans folks don't apply, that the Affordable Care Act and the protections for trans folks was an overreach, that it is not sex discrimination. So let, let's go ahead and say why this is why they ruled this way and why the wording that they used is important. So in the opinion uh, Gorsuch wrote an employer who fires an individual for being homosexual or transgender fires that person for traits or actions that would not have been questions questioned in members of a different sex. So the reason why this is important is because he is defining discrimination against gay people and discrimination against trans people as necessarily taking sex into account, which if that is established as a precedent, that means that any law that prohibits discrimination based on sex, by extension, must also prohibit discrimination on the basis of gender identity and sexual orientation. So the argument there, so to give an example, if you fire someone because you find out they are married to a man, you necessarily have to take into account the fact that they are a man. See, if they were a woman and they were married to a man and you didn't fire them because of that, then you are taking sex into account. So 
In order for you to discriminate against someone for being gay or for being trans, you have to take biological sex into account. So this wording, this precedent, could potentially nullify the Trump administration's new policies about transgender issues. Now, that we're still early and that is a little bit speculative, so you know, don't don't start celebrating yet. But regardless, we do at least know that there are two people on the Supreme Court that hold that position. So even if this specific court case doesn't nullify that, almost certainly the Trump administration is going to be sued over uh, over those new policies. And if it gets to if it gets to the Supreme Court and we know that this is how this is how they view sex discrimination, then that's that's good news. It's my deepest hope that the Trump administration in their full incompetence have actually nominated a justice that while maybe conservative is at least loyal enough to the ethics of the law and trying to have an internal logic and not just vote the way that Trump and his supporters would want. Yeah. It is my hope. I do. Uh, I would caution against overexcitement that Gorsuch will be in any way an ally. Uh, yeah. It's definitely no, my hope that he will at least be somewhat um, reasonable and somewhat nonpartisan. That's yeah. a dear hope. So this again, would be really, really powerful and meaningful to folks in the LGBTQ community. In particular, they have not been protected from discrimination in the workplace, and this is one step closer to preventing that. One thing that this also does highlight is the diversity of approaches on the Supreme Court. Now, I have always kind of... I've always believed that regardless of how a Supreme Court justice identifies their ideology, that most of the time they will come at things from a partisan lens, from an activist lens. So three of the ways that people often view decisions made with courts are, is the judge an originalist, an activist, or a textualist? And what that means is, so an originalist would make a decision based on what was the original intention of the writing of this law. So the three judges that voted against this ruling, they came at it from the point of view, or at least they, the way they argued it, was that the Civil Rights Act, when it, when it uh, wrote about sex discrimination, it was not, the, the people that wrote that were not thinking about gender identity or sexual orientation. Textualists, which Neil Gorsuch considers himself to be one, say it doesn't matter what the original intention was. What matters is what the actual text says. Which is why Gorsuch actually wrote, quote, those who adopted the Civil Rights Act might not have anticipated their work would lead to this particular result. Likely, they weren't thinking about many of the act's consequences that have become apparent over the years, including its prohibition against discrimination on the basis of motherhood or its ban on the sexual harassment of male employees. But the limits of the drafter's imagination supply no reason to ignore the law's demands. Yeah, that is a very textualist uh, approach to it. And then the third is, of course, activist judges, which most of the time I would actually argue that 
most of the judges are activist judges when they really want to be. Um, but in this in this specific case, you do see a very clear uh, a very clear distinction in ideology of the people in the courts. So um, you know, mad credit to all of the judges that voted in favor of this. This is a wonderful step in the right direction. This was a victory for LGBTQ equality, and hopefully, the implications of this court case will be felt in court cases and history to come. And hopefully very soon we will see a challenge against the Trump administration's desire to pull away um, health care from trans folks because it's just, it's absolutely horrifying. And again, um, I would hope that anyone does not necessarily need to embody an identity in order to advocate for the rights of those who do. But uh, if that is the kind of person that you are, or rather if you're trying to convince someone who is that way, you could always use the intersex argument to encourage them to understand that sex is not binary and that there may be people that they love and care for and know who are intersex who don't know, or if they do know, they might not share it with everyone because it's their business. And now time for our favorite segment, Asshat of, of the, the week. week. So Jess, who is our asshat this week? White House Press Secretary Kaylee McEnany. Oh, she's a she's a newcomer to the Trump administration. Um, very yeah, excited she, to finally have her on. She looks like his uh, his type that he likes to surround him with <laughs> himself with. Yeah. So let's go back a little bit. So Kaylee McEnany is worthy of our asshat status because she had some very idiotic and horrific offense, uh, defenses of Donald Trump's attacking of that 75-year-old protester who was pushed by police officers uh, in Buffalo, New York. I just want to clarify, the police officers physically attacked um, the 75-year-old man. Uh, it was Donald Trump who um, attacked him on Twitter. Fun fact... Melania Trump declared her pet project as first lady to be fighting against cyberbullying. Yeah. Always remember that. Every <laughs> time Donald Trump tweets. Yeah. I just... It, <sighs> so if you'll recall, uh, Donald Trump tried to claim that... It, because he saw this on One American News Network, which, if you will recall, is this insane right-wing conspiracy site. One of the main anchors' mottos is, even when I'm wrong, I'm right. So real reliable guy. Um, he saw a speculation. This was spec. This wasn't a report. This was speculation that the seventy-five-year-old man might Martin, have been Martin Gugino. Martin Gugino might have been a member of Antifa. So there was no evidence to it. So a reporter asked McEnany about this during a uh, press conference. And to, to credit that reporter, it sounds like they pushed back um, when she tried to deflect. I really appreciate that in a reporter. I've seen way too many opportunities to confront lies passed by reporters. And I, I hope that reporters are starting to realize that, unfortunately, no matter how they conduct themselves and how nice and gentle they are with the president or uh, his press secretaries, they are going to be gaslit and they may as well confront them on TV so that everyone can see them lie. Yeah, so McEnany responded by saying, 
The president does not regret standing up for law enforcement men and women across this country. And let me say this, and just to give you a bit about the mindset behind the president's tweet. Look, we're living in a moment that is, it seems to be reflexively anti-police officer, and that's unacceptable to the president. I don't really care what he accepts. Yeah. Well, the reason I why... find his existence unacceptable. Okay, so this does give you some insight into the psychology of the Trump administration. The fact that if they hear we can't have any more bad police, what they translate that to mean is we can't we we hate police. Actually, I would argue that it goes even further because I, I am guaranteed by my First Amendment to say. I hate the police. I think they're corrupt. I think they're brutal. I can say all of that. I can be anti-police. That is allowed. I cannot harm police. I cannot do anything to stop them if it is against the law. But I am allowed to occupy that position. And whether or not Donald Trump likes it, there are a lot of people with opposing viewpoints. So for his press secretary to come out and say, well, the president doesn't like that attitude. So you all better knock it off is so authoritarian. And also I'm not exaggerating that, when I'm saying this is fascism, y'all. And saying that to defend the attacking of an old man and, and, and the, the reporter, the reporter hit back saying, um, uh, saying it's a baseless conspiracy theory. And McEnany was like, it's not a baseless conspiracy. No, not at all. I won't acknowledge that because look, you had, let's contrast this to the George Floyd situation, that horrific video that we saw. Every single police officer that I saw across the country came out and said that this is an inexcusable action and I condemn this police officer. In this case, there were 57 police officers who said, I resign in protest over the way the two police officers were handled. So, when you saw that these officers resigned because there was a little bit of discipline when they assaulted a 75-year-old man and you took away, well, that means there's something wrong with the police officers. She took away, that means that there's something wrong with the person who got pushed. And in an early segment, in an early interview on Fox News, she tried to excuse it by claiming that the guy had used some tweets in which he used profanity. That was her defense. Which is really, really um, so, so hypocritical coming from the Trump administration since when Donald Trump admitted to sexual assault, what they chose to focus on was that he's allowed to use profanity. It's just locker room talk, completely ignoring the fact that everyone was angry and outraged over his um disgusting acts and choose instead to focus on how you know he's the he's the real president who who will talk to you like a true person and use profanity so again there's just there's so many layers of um deflecting and just um completely masking the true harm of this administration and anybody who takes the job of press secretary to Donald Trump Really, I, I don't know. I don't know at what point do you come to hate yourself so much in life that you choose that career for yourself. I'm sure that the money is great, but do you actually get to live with yourself after, or do you just spend every second um, trying to fill the void of like despair inside you? 
So one can hope at least. So a hearty congratulations to Kaylee McEnany. Congratulations, Kaylee. You're an asshat. For being our asshat of of the the week. Our final segment today is going to be just a brief discussion about the language of limited government and how progressives and and liberals and, and Democrats really need to stop allowing Republicans and conservatives to hog that language. Yeah, they do. They monopolize the rhetoric around it, um, which automatically evokes so many ideals that the U.S. Um, pushes in our culture, you know, patriotism and yeah. and uh, democracy. It's all about limited government. And if you've noticed, the conservatives are uh, the conservative lawmakers are real big fans of uh, government overreach yeah. when it suits them. Exactly. So they, are, they'd rather regulate people than corporations. Yeah. Well, that, that's that right there is an important point. So the art, the narrative that is often given by Republicans is if you have a bunch of regulation of corporations or businesses, that that automatically means that the government is going to then have a significant amount of regulation on your personal life. Help, help, help. The money's rights is being oppressed. The money has rights, okay? You're going to hurt its feelings. So so one thing I would ask you, if you are a small government conservative or a small government libertarian, one question I would ask you is why? To which the reason for a lot of the people that I talk to for why they consider themselves small government conservative, small government libertarian is... Well, because I don't want people telling me how to live my life. And preach. I 100% agree with that. I 100% agree with that. But if we really look from a policy standpoint at the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, or not even not even just parties, just ideologies, we're talking about the left and the right. If you're not, as long as you, if, if you're not looking at it from a point of view of the uh, the middle school definition of left versus right, which is big government versus small government, but rather the nuances of how ideology often transfixes itself in reality, then you would see that a lot of the regulation in people's personal lives are advocated for by the right. And on the other end of that, deregulation of um certain industries actually is limiting your personal liberty yeah you can't get insurance if it were up if it were up to conservatives insurance companies could deny you coverage for pre-existing conditions and that would be their right that means that as an individual you don't have the right to choose which insurance company fits you best. How's that for an open market? Conservatives? Yeah. So let's look at what a lot of people on the left are actually arguing for. And I'm not just, I'm not, again, I'm not just talking about the Democratic Party because I have found that there are a lot of people within the Democratic Party who do fight for some some more authoritarian social issues. So I will say a little bit more. Um, I, I'm not... 
I am not at all implying that Nathan agrees with me on this point, but I am anti-capitalist, which means that I think that establishment Democrats are already betraying their cause by accepting the funds that they get from these corporations, these donors. Um, they've already managed to betray their trust. So I'm I'm not anti-capitalist, but I do definitely agree that um, that taking corporate donations is is betraying the mission. Um, but but the the point that I want to make. So let's let's go over some policies that are discussed more by the libertarian left, that I think that Democrats really need to start spending more time on so that they can co-opt that language of limited government. Number one, the war on drugs. The war on drugs is a massive government overreach, and it has been a massive failure. It has not decreased drug use, but it has ruined lives, torn apart neighborhoods, and resulted in people having overly harsh prison sentences for minor offenses. It has, and that is massive government overreach. It has also impacted the ability of um, medical research into some of these drugs. Some of these drugs might be beneficial. I mean, we are just now, this is considered a more mainstream opinion now, that marijuana can be used medicinally to help, say, cancer patients or anyone with chronic pain. We acknowledge that now. But for years and years and years, that was not acknowledged. So again, medical research that could benefit from this is completely stifled, and yet the pharmaceutical companies are not. Again, this is an instance where deregulating an industry has infringed on individual rights. Yeah. And, and, and also, to be clear, I'm not saying that this is where the Democratic Party stands. I'm saying that this is where they should stand so that they can use that language of limited government and actually make it mean something. So number two, sex work. Prostitution, still illegal in most states. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about human trafficking. I'm talking about legalized, regulated prostitution. People are put in jail, and in some cases prison, for what they're doing with their own bodies. And in some cases, those are victims of trafficking. Yeah. So instead of being helped, um, that is what they need and getting out of that situation instead not even to mention that if we were to look at the social um and uh economic causes of prostitution there would at least be a possibility of eliminating anyone involved in sex work who did not truly want to do it out of um enjoyment or at least indifference and if we want to use noam chomsky's argument against prostitution, which is basically that if you get rid of the structural barriers that make people turn to a life of prostitution, that you wouldn't have any prostitutes. If we want to use that argument, that's fine. If, if prostitution naturally, naturally ends because we've gotten rid of structural barriers that keep people in poverty and get them to turn to that, and that naturally gets rid of prostitution, that's fine. Yeah, fine. Let's let's, let's put all the um, structure in place to get rid of any economic um, and sociological need to do that. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Let's experiment with that. But that is not an argument for making the act itself illegal and making the act itself um, criminalized. Which is, again, 
infringing on individual right? Is it not your right to choose to have sex with someone? And if you, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the people who uh, use the services of sex workers. There are plenty of people who have difficulty having sexual relationships and finding people who would like to have sexual relationships with. And it's not okay to just say, you're too ugly, you're too disabled, you're too weird. Um, You don't deserve it. If they are able to, um, in a consensual environment, offer pay for a valuable service, then they should be able to. Sexual knowledge is a human right and sexual pleasure is too. Yeah. And number three is policing. So one thing that I think is fascinating is the cognitive dissonance that a lot of conservative politicians have been able to peddle in simultaneously claiming that there can be no oversight into police officers who are the government. Make no mistake, police officers are an arm of the government. If a police officer infringes on your rights, that is the government infringing on your rights. So the idea that making sure that the police officers do not have the power to violate your li- rights, the idea of that, of being against that as being a right-wing issue, is a classic example of conservatives and the right being pro-big government, being pro-authoritarian. So um, I would just add on to the fact that the government uh, or the government run or branch of the government police force is also protected in a way that the layperson is not. For instance, you may be aware as a civilian that ignorance of the law is not an excuse. If I am in a state where marijuana is not legalized and I am enjoying marijuana, the police officer who is around me has there there has the right to um, enforce some sort of consequences for that. Ignorance of the law, regardless of whether I thought that I was in an area where it was safe, does not matter. However, if, say, there was some sort of miscommunication where it was actually legal for me to enjoy marijuana where I was, and the police officer did not know that and chose to arrest me, they could be free from any censure because police officers do not actually have to know all of the laws of their jurisdiction. Let me repeat that. Police officers who enforce the law that does not protect the layperson for being ignorant of can be ignorant of the law itself. And as long as they could make a reasonable assumption about the law, which it might be, marijuana is not legalized in all states. It might have recently changed. There could be an argument made there that the police officer had a reasonable assumption that what I was doing is illegal. This is not okay. This has everything to do with our problem with empowering police officers with this great responsibility and expecting, number one, too much from them because the scope of what they take care of is something that they cannot know all of 
the facets of. You don't find many lawyers who say, I practice literally every element of the law. A lot of them specialize. You don't find many physicians who say, I'm a specialist in every, and, and, you know, eight different specialties. Again, because when you have something that is a complex system, you have to have specialists and you have to have people who just know the bare basics and know when to refer out. So I do understand that police are under a lot of pressure to know things that they ne don't necessarily need to know. They are also not trained long enough. So again, even the good cops can be infringing on civil civilian liberties simply and be protected from any censure from that simply because they are ignorant. Yeah. There's something really wrong with that lack of accountability. Yeah. So at the end of the day, the Democratic Party, the left, the progressives really need to stop allowing the right to monopolize the language of limited government because there are several left-wing stances that are by definition scaling back government. And if, if the narrative is that the conservative concern about regulation on businesses is that it will lead to regulation on your personal life, that doesn't really make any sense because they're the ones who are arguing in favor of government overreach on your personal life to begin with. And if you think that it's not true, if you think that a deregulated, uh, oh, let's just say you took away um, regulations enacting workplace safety, you need to review the history of um, workplace injuries in this country. There was no time period where a bunch of corporations and industries decided, golly gee, we've got to do something to stop these four-year-olds from getting their arms caught in the thrasher. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's immoral. We've got to do something to be safe. No. In pretty much every instance of regulation and safety, it's been because the government has realized that too many people were being injured and were dying through employer negligence. Corporations do not have rights. People do. And the last point that I want to make on this is the fact that if your stance comes from a principle of not wanting other people to tell you what to do, sit back and think about your boss or your, your business, the, the employer that you work for. How much control do they have over your life? So when I'm talking about civil libertarianism, and, I'm, and I've made this argument in the past, and I'm talking about how the business sector corporations have effectively become a fourth branch of government because of how much of an impact they have on our personal lives. Doesn't it then make sense? If your principle, if your principled stance is not wanting people to tell you what to do, doesn't it make sense for the other three branches of government to implement some checks and balances to make sure that your freedoms are not being denied or trampled on regardless of whether it's being done by the official government institution or the private sector. And with that, we are going to go ahead and wrap up with our highlights of the week. So Jess, what are your highlights this week? 
Oh, okay. Yesterday, I walked outside and saw a big old chunky bumblebee. No, wait. <laughs> I don't know if it was a bumblebee. I saw a big old chunky bee on the ground pollinating the heck out of some weed. And um, some I... Weed? <laughs> and I have officially rounded the corner on 85 years old because I baby talked to that bumblebee for a full 30 seconds and just was so happy and encouraging. And I, I felt close to nature and warm and happy for a brief 30 seconds. And I think about that bumblebee a lot now. I hope that it's happy and safe and not dead already. What about you, Nathan? What was your highlight? It's not going to match mine. It's not even going to get close. Yeah, probably not, because my highlight is the fact that on the anniversary of my relationship with my wife, LGBTQ people had a massive expansion of civil rights protections carried out by the Supreme Court. And that felt really good. I'm not trying to one up you, darling. I think that's highlight of the year material. Yeah. Because I haven't I have not had anything else happen this year that is that good. Yeah. <laughs> Name one thing that's happened in 2020 that hasn't been crap. Yeah, no, that that's that's a good point. So so anyways, it it has that was really good. That that really that was the good news that I feel like we needed. And with that, that is today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Like I said, next week I will be off and Jess will be on with Michael. So make sure to listen for that next week. <laughs>